Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. I'm about to take a six-week break to finish a book, so this will be the last episode I'll host for a while. My colleagues will make sure the show goes on in my absence. Before I go, I thought it'd be interesting to listen back to many of the interviews I've conducted over the last 18 months. And in this edition, I'll bring you some of the highlights. Putting this retrospective together, I've become more aware of some of the big recurring themes in world politics, and also perhaps more aware of my own personal obsessions. There's the rise of China and its growing rivalry with countries like the US and India. And there are the increasing fears about the future of democracy in the US and Europe. And in the middle of it all, of course, we got hit by the pandemic, which raises the biggest question of the lot. Has COVID-19 permanently changed the world? One of the most interesting trips I took before the pandemic struck was to Hong Kong. There, I met Joshua Wong, one of the leaders of the pro-democracy movement. He'd just been released from prison, and he gave me his assessment of where Hong Kong was heading. I was jailed since mid of May. I can't expect it. Two million people will talk to the street when I was still in the cell. It's really impressive and far from my expectation. With the extradition bill being introduced by Hong Kong government, no matter elderlies, the generation of baby boomers, or millennials, they also join the strike, results in two millions people join the rally. Hong Kong is the city with only 7.5 million people, which means 25% of population joined the single protest. It's really impressive and the legacy of Hong Kong and the legacy under the hardline rule of Beijing. When the recorder was off, Joshua Wong told me how he'd coped with prison. And one of the things he found hardest was being deprived of a watch. Without it, he couldn't follow the passage of time. That remark feels even more poignant now, since Joshua Wong's just been sent back to prison for his role in the protest movement. He may now be there for many years. That summer of 2019, I also visited Moscow, where people were also in the streets demonstrating against the government. As a journalist, I try to talk to people on all sides of the story, and one of the most interesting conversations I had on that trip was with Fyodor Lukyanov, editor of Russia and Global Affairs. He's also close to President Vladimir Putin. Lukyanov told me that Putin sees his primary goal as preventing Russia from losing its historic status as one of the world's leading powers. And he explained how the Russian president's thinking had evolved. When he just arrived as president, he was elected in the year 2000. His first term, 2000 till 2004, was a disciplined continuation of Yeltsin line. Rather, he tried to do what Yeltsin failed to do, to make Russia part of, so to say, extended Western community. Maybe at that time, Putin was the most pro-European and pro-Western Russian leader ever. For many reasons, it didn't work. Then it started to change. And many people see the turning point in retrospect as the Munich speech he gave in 2007, when he more or less says the West has disappointed him, betrayed him, or something like that. Uh, Munich speech was a turning point, the public turning point. Yeah. Anyway, the Russian intervention in Syria, 2016, was final act to complete this agenda 
of bringing Russia back to the global stage as a great power. Putin was never stupid enough to believe that Russia can be back as a superpower, as the Soviet Union. But as a great power, as a power which has its seat at the most important table in the world, where decisions are being made, I think that was achieved through Syrian intervention. But some months later, the author, Catherine Belton, offered an alternative explanation of what was driving Putin. A fear that if he lost power, he and his clique would lose all their money. Somebody close to Putin has told me there are two Putins. There is the collective Putin and there is Putin as an individual. But essentially, they are the group of security men who, uh, with Putin, came to power 20 years ago in 2000. And you said that Putin himself, you think, might not actually want to stay on until he was 83. So in a way, that contradicts the idea of the sort of power-hungry dictator who is addicted to this role. In a sense, you're kind of implying he's in some level also trapped by it. Yeah, I think he's hostage to the system that he created. The way that he and his security men shored up power makes any transfer of power fraught with risk for them. I mean, you only have to look at the Hodorkovsky case, the way they took over the Yukos oil major. There have been numerous international court rulings showing that their takedown of Russia's once richest man and the takeover of his oil company, which was once Russia's biggest, was politically motivated. So if those international court rulings are ever applied within Russia, they lose control of a very important piece of strategic cash flow and they're open to proceedings themselves. President Putin once described the collapse of the Soviet Union as the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. But elsewhere, the fall of the Berlin Wall was a liberation. I was in Berlin on the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall in 2019, and I sought out one of my favourite contacts, Thomas Bagger, who's the chief diplomatic advisor to the German president. Thomas explained how Germans had interpreted the world after the wall came down. And he also reminisced about what he'd been doing on that fateful day in 1989. Well, I was in a computer lab in the United States where I was working on my master's degree. I remember American friends rushing into the lab and saying, Thomas, they're taking the wall down, they're taking the wall down. And I was thinking, you know, these crazy Americans, they must have gotten something wrong because which wall are they talking about? I couldn't even imagine it when people told me it was happening. This was the most non-linear event of my adult life. But it's striking how we've derived this thoroughly linear expectation from such a non-linear event. By which you mean the linear expectation being that the whole world was going to move towards democracy and markets in the same way that Germany had done. Right. And Ivan Krustev, the Bulgarian intellectual, recently said the end of history was an American idea, but it was a German reality. It's this expectation, what I'll call the expectation of grand convergence. Over time now, everybody would become like us. Why it was particularly popular in Germany? There are certain elements. It is this notion that after having been on the wrong side twice in the last century of First and Second World War and the Nazi uh, catastrophe. This was clearly an instance where at least the West Germans felt they were on the right side of history. And that felt very good. But the other, I think, specifically German element is this notion that if there are larger forces at work, structural forces that move history in the direction of democracy and market economy, This was very a very comforting thought for 
a country that had been as badly burned by a charismatic leader. This idea that personal agency actually matters less in the world post-89, and that those who govern us and all others are basically there to administer the inevitable, but not really to influence or change the course of history. Thomas Bagger went on to argue that Germans have now shed the comforting illusion that foreign policy is simply about administering the rollout of freedom and capitalism. Viewed from Berlin, the future now looks more threatening. There are all sorts of reasons for that. Russia's annexation of Crimea, China's threats to Hong Kong, Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, and the sense that, even in the European Union, democracy is now under threat in countries such as Poland and Hungary. Anne Applebaum tackled that topic in her recent book, Twilight of Democracy. From her home in Poland, she explained how the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, used the refugee crisis of 2015. And this is, remember, that Hungary had no migration crisis of its own. Nobody was trying to get to Hungary in order to stay there. But he nevertheless manipulated and used the crisis as a way of justifying himself, of legitimizing his misuse of democratic means, and also as a way of making an argument. You know, for him, it's very, very important to kind of delegitimize the European Union because the European Union stands for rule of law. It stands for neutral justice and all those things that he's seeking to undermine inside his own country. And so he needs to send a message constantly to his countrymen that the EU is bad, the EU is evil. We need to keep out the EU because the EU is a challenge to his means of ruling Hungary. And he's found a lot of admirers around Europe for exactly that. In France, meanwhile, there's yet another take on the future of Europe. President Emmanuel Macron sees this as the moment to build what he calls a sovereign Europe. Sylvie Kaufmann, who's the editorial director of Le Monde, told me what Macron means by that. It is a concept he's been pushing around for the past three years. If you remember this long speech at the Sorbonne in September 2017, was very much about European sovereignty and strategic autonomy. And for much of those past three years, he may have had a sense that he was preaching in the wilderness, but he seems to be now convinced that he's made real inroads on defense, on technology, on public health, even now on fiscal and economic integration. You know, this is for him and probably for most European leaders, a giant step forward. So he has a sense now that Europe has woken up, as he says. One of the things I've particularly enjoyed about doing this podcast is the chance it gives me to talk to some of the world's most interesting thinkers. At the World Economic Forum in January 2020, I spoke to Adam Tooze, a history professor at Columbia University. He's working on a book on the geopolitics of climate change, a topic I know is important, but that, frankly, I've always found a bit on the dull side. Talking to Adam, however, brought it alive for me, and I hope also for listeners. Insofar as there is a hope at this current moment, I would locate it in the fact that the two great centres of global growth of the next 50 years, which are not in the West, but in Asia, neither of them, though it would be in their best interest to do so, have engaged in denialist climate politics. Neither the Chinese nor the Indian administration, both of them have found ways of owning the climate problem. So part of the provincialization of the European and Western mindset that we have to go through is we have to recognise that we are now bystanders. We're collateral damage of a problem that has to be addressed in Asia. 
That trip to Davos in January last year was the last sniff of my old life. Even as we chatted, COVID-19 was spreading across the world. In fact, I remember returning from Davos and receiving an anxious email from somebody I'd met there for dinner, saying, do you think it was really a good idea to go to a massive international conference at the beginning of a global pandemic? As far as I know, none of the Davos goers actually caught COVID. But by February, it was clear that the pandemic had reached Europe. It hit Italy first, and our correspondent there, Miles Johnson, explained how he felt watching the pandemic move north towards family and friends in the UK. When the lockdown measures first began, there was certainly quite a large level of apparent solidarity amongst Italians. And I had this sort of slightly surreal feeling when I was talking to people in the UK, sort of friends, family, over the last two weeks, that although a lot of people I spoke to did take it seriously, they couldn't quite grasp the fact that there was going to be a full lockdown. And so, yeah, I have sort of felt like I've been in the future somewhat. And it's very grim because you know exactly what's going to play out in British hospitals. And it's just sort of been this thing on the horizon that you can just see approaching day by day. And, of course, a year later, it's clear that Miles was totally right. The death toll in the UK is now over 115,000, far worse than we could have imagined back then. One of the first people I spoke to as the pandemic unfolded was Gro Harlem Brundtland, a former head of the World Health Organization. She explained how difficult it had been to deal with China during the SARS epidemic in 2003. One needs to realize that we have global institutions, but the one that can help us in a health emergency is first and foremost the WHO, sharing information across all countries. But we also learned that you have to improve the commitments for transparency. You know what was the situation when you go 17 years back? I had no alternative to speaking out because what China did then was for days and then weeks refusing to take my call to the health minister of China, telling us that no, the People's Congress was assembling in February and the health minister was not available, etc. So. As days and maybe a week or two went like that, where we tried to get information, I then spoke out because there was no alternative. I had no response. So I had to speak out publicly against China and ask them to answer my calls. And then they did. That issue of how open China is or isn't being and whether the World Health Organization dealt well with Beijing was a recurrent theme of the year. But by April, China itself appeared to have come through the worst, as our deputy bureau chief there, Yun Yang, explained. So the last city to relax its lockdown measures was Beijing. And just over a week ago, Beijing decided to stop quarantining people arriving into the city from outside, which basically means that for most practical purposes, we can travel domestically without much hindrance in China. And if you go out on the streets, especially for um, cities outside of the capital, which has been the most conservative about its lockdown measures, I mean, here in Sichuan, um, the southern province where I am right now, people are really behaving as if the epidemic is completely over. The fact that China's been relatively successful in controlling COVID-19, while the pandemics run rampage in the US and Europe, has led to something like a propaganda war, with some arguing that this is proof that democracy is not always the best system. 
Early in the crisis, I sought the view of Francis Fukuyama, of End of History fame. He argued that the essential question in this situation was not whether authoritarianism or democracy worked better, but whether citizens trusted their governments. Well, I think that there has to be a basic degree of social trust between citizens and their governments for a number of obvious reasons. Now, that trust is built on several things. You have to believe your government knows what it's doing. It has the right capacity. It has the doctors, the health professionals, that they're making good judgments, that the first responders are capable. All of these things are a component of trust. But then the more elusive thing is whether you actually think the leaders of your government know what they're doing, that they're actually taking public interest into consideration and not just their short-term political interests. And so if both of those are in place, I think you're going to get a lot of compliance with difficult rules. And if they're not, then you're in big trouble. And do you think that there's a distinction to be made between authoritarian and democratic governments in terms of being able to command trust? Or do you think in the right circumstances, either is capable of doing it? Well, I think that either is capable, although I think that in general, the number of authoritarian governments that are strongly trusted by their citizens tends to be pretty low compared to democracies. I mean, that's why we prefer democracy, because it does rest on consent of the governed, and authoritarian countries obviously lack that. But, you know, a place like Singapore, and I would say China to a a great extent, both of those places have citizens who think the government knows what it's doing and are willing to comply with its rules. This was also the year of Black Lives Matter. To get an international perspective on what was going on in the United States, I talked to the Nigerian journalist, Dele Olajede, about the global resonance of the protest. I think that there is a certain aspirational quality to America that the rest of the world largely responds. To my thinking, it has always tried hardest than any other country to try to fix its problems. Uh, The civil rights movement was kind of like the, paradoxically, the height of America's moral power in the sense that everybody could see a country fixing itself. This time, everybody can see a country falling apart and people scrambling to find a way, which is not at all clear. What is hopeful, though, is that Probably for the first time, the majority of people demonstrating in American streets and in the streets of the world's global cities are white people, or at least people who are not black. So this is no longer seen as simply a black fight for rights and for survival and for justice and for equality. It is now seen by these new younger generations as a human fight. And so that is something hopeful and different. Uh, But I think the jury is still out as to whether this is going to last. 2020 was also a year of rising tensions between China and the outside world. Over the summer, Indian and Chinese troops clashed in the Himalayas. Here's the academic Pratap Banumetta from Delhi talking about the Indian reaction to the killing of their troops on the border. I think I would summarize the mood in the following ways. I think there is consensus across the political spectrum that China is displaying not just an unusually aggressive intent, 
but that it has almost double-crossed India, that the India-China relationship was one where Mr. Modi had invested a lot of personal capital. And I think there's a palpable sense that China has betrayed that spirit. So I think the sense of anger is quite deep. I think since 1976, India's approach to China has been, look, put cold water on the border dispute and deepen our relationship in almost all other areas, particularly economics, trade, cooperation, a whole range of other things. And I think it's very, very clear now that that strategy will be rethought very radically after this incident. Tensions have also risen between the US and China. The Trump administration stepped up American contacts with Taiwan, a democratic and self-governing island that China insists is a rebel province that Beijing has the right to invade. In recent months, China's been stepping up military exercises around the island. I asked Professor Margaret Macmillan, who recently published a book on the history of war, about the parallels between US-Chinese tensions today and the outbreak of other great conflicts in the past. I don't think war is by any means inevitable, but I think you sometimes get an accident which will trigger something. A current sort of parallel today might be the, the fate of Taiwan. The Chinese government is behaving much more aggressively now, at least in language, when it talks about Taiwan. And it's also been doing military exercises around Taiwan or flying very close to Taiwan's airspace. And the question will be, what will the United States do if the Chinese actually decide they will make a move? They might try and invade Taiwan. What will the United States do? Or what would happen if an American ship bumped into a Chinese ship or vice versa? I mean, they've come pretty close in the South China Seas recently. What happens then? I mean, the rhetoric goes up, public opinion gets engaged, and governments often find themselves pushed into dead ends, which it is very hard for them to get out of. The removal of Donald Trump and his Twitter feed from the White House may make US-Chinese relations a little bit more stable, at least for a while. But the manner of Trump's exit from the US presidency marked a shocking beginning to 2021. For a while, several of my conversations centered around a question that would once have been regarded as unthinkable. Is American democracy itself under threat? Speaking shortly before the November election, Susan Glasser of The New Yorker foreshadowed the crisis that was to come. Well, experience in the last four years has taught me the hard way <laughs> that uh, the safest bet is to believe that, yes, the Republicans will go along with Donald Trump because, in fact, that's exactly what they've done for four years. And so at each step along the way, we have said, well, they won't really accept this or they won't really accept that or really, you know, if he does this, it'll be a red line, he'll go too far. And at every step along the way, Republican elected officials in Washington, in the Senate, have proved not to be a bulwark against the president, but have supported him. The storming of Congress by a pro-Trump mob on January the 6th profoundly shook the world, me included. In the aftermath, I spoke to Anne-Marie Slaughter of the New America Think Tank. She made no effort to underplay the gravity of the crisis, but she also expressed optimism for the future. The deeper issues here independent of Trump or Biden or anybody else, the deeper issues are that the United States is moving from a majority white nation to a plurality nation and no liberal democracy that started out with a majority of one group has ever made that transition. The United States is undergoing it and that creates huge turbulence. I don't think it's by any means a given that we will make that transition successfully, but I think it is certainly a strong possibility, if not a likelihood. In other words, if you ask me to bet, I'm going to bet that we can. In the end, it is a source of dynamism 
and energy that will ultimately outweigh the conflict that it brings. That was Anne-Marie Slaughter, who I think summed up nicely the balance of hope, fear and uncertainty in the US. And those three words, hope, fear, uncertainty, also apply to the rest of the world. The pandemic's been the biggest disruption to daily life that I think many of us have ever experienced. We all hope things can get back to the way they were, but will they? That's a question I'm sure I'll return to when I come back to the podcast in six weeks' time. But in the meantime, thanks for listening to this retrospective edition of the Rachman Review. In case you're wondering, the book I'm working on will be called Age of the Strongman. It brings together many of the themes we've been talking about in these episodes, in particular why the world's been producing so many illiberal strongman leaders. Putin, Erdogan, Xi Jinping, Viktor Orban, Jair Bolsonaro, and of course, Donald Trump. In part, it's an effort to make sense of Trump by placing him in a global context. While I get on with that project, I'll leave the podcast in the capable hands of my FT colleagues. So please keep listening.